We're looking this morning at Genesis 29, beginning in verse 31, and we're going to read down to chapter 30, verse 24. And again, let me briefly go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Our God, we do lift up our voices to you as those who have nothing. We come to you with empty hands. We come to you as the friend that came to his friend at midnight begging for bread. And we pray, our Father, that you would hear us as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of his master and as the eyes of a mistress to the hand of her, her uh, maidservant to the hand of her mistress, our eyes look to you, our Father. And we, we cry out that you would make us to see the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give more of the fullness of the Lord Jesus to us. We pray that you would give us deeper understanding of your word. We pray that you would convict us of sin and that you would encourage us in the way of righteousness. We pray, our God, that you would cause us to hear the voice of Christ this morning and that you would draw us to yourself with cords of love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Genesis 29, beginning in verse 31, and there, uh, again, we're in that great account of Jacob and the patriarchs in that very messy account, and I've said this uh, several times, this is more showtime than focus on the family. This is not nice and clean. It is not neat. It is a mess, and we are right in the epicenter of that mess and maybe the messiest part of that mess as we read about Jacob and Leah and Rachel and all that is happening there. And so Moses now writes in verse 31 of chapter 29, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son. And said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now, this time, my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time, I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come to me, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you also take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, 
Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came home from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah. And she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob his sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son. God has taken away my reproach, she said. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the more painful memories I have as a child is every time I would go to spend time with my grandparents in, in Philadelphia as a little boy, um, they, would, they would sit my sister and I down in front of the TV and we thought, oh, oh great, we're going to get to watch television. And, and no sooner did I start getting excited that I would see the hourglass turning and I was like, oh no, it's a soap opera. I've got to watch Days of My Life with my grandparents or All My Children with my grandparents. It was one of the most devastating experiences I have ever had as a child. And, and maybe perhaps more remarkable than the impact that had on me, the, 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 the grading at the core of my little being having to watch All My Children with my grandparents is the fact that All My Children ran for 40 years from, from the 70s to 2011. That is remarkable. That's one of those weird oversights in the universe that they didn't cancel that sooner. Um, but as, as we think about the nature of soap operas in our day and we think about what, what things go into a soap opera, the envy, the backbiting, the sexual immorality, all of the scandals and the allurements that draw people in, all the twist and the twistedness of the characters, and, and then we come to Genesis 29. This is, and many theologians have noted this in our day, this is really the first soap opera. And it's the patriarchal family. It's the covenant family. This is the Christian home. And here is the grandson of Abraham. Here is the one to whom the covenant promises were given that the Redeemer would come from him, that salvation would come from him, that, that through Jacob, the world would be blessed, the nations would be blessed, that God would redeem through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob by sending Jesus Christ into the world through them. And this is the family. This is the church of God. You know, it's interesting. This is the beginning of the old covenant church, isn't it? This is, this is the story of the inception of Israel. And in, in, in many ways, it sets out for us the, the awful and sad history of the Old Covenant Church. In many ways, everything embedded in this drama, um, everything embedded in this twisted narrative, is really everything that we find throughout Israel's history. And, and most significantly, it's the idolatry. It is, it is the idolatry that has uh, wreaked havoc on this covenant home. 
It is the idolatry of Leah, remember, wanting her husband so desperately, as we saw last week. It is the idolatry of Jacob seeing the beautiful Rachel and loving her not for who she was, but because he was physically attracted to her. It is the idolatry here, as we'll see today, of Rachel. And Rachel is, is acting with great envy and idolatry, longing for the preeminence, longing to be superior to her older sister, not even longing for her husband, but, but at every point using her husband, using her maidservant, using even the children that she's seeking after to nurture and foster this idol in her heart and life. And really, as I've titled this sermon, Idol Relations, uh, you, could, you could imagine that we could, we could call this soap opera the family idols. Um, all are idolatrous children. And that's exactly what God wants us to see. He wants us to see in Genesis 29 and 30, and especially here in this this race that Rachel and Leah have with one another to bear children, this competition that they have. God wants us to see that we have the same hearts and that we have the same propensity to idolatry. And God wants us to see, and this is the really amazing thing we're going to see this morning, God wants us to see that even where our desires are idolatrous, even where our idolatry leads to very warped sin, God overrules in the lives of his people, and God brings about his purposes and his plans in his people's lives, even when their families look like this family looks. And so we're going to see those two things this morning. First, we're going, to consider, um, we're going to consider that God overrules our desires. And secondly, we're going to see that God overrules our sin. We'll notice, as we've already seen Leah, we've already seen that the Lord loved Leah, that Jacob loved Rachel. He despised Leah. The, the language that is used at the end of chapter 29 is more than just love less. It is a, a despising. Jacob despised Leah because he had been tricked into marrying Leah. Leah had participated in that deception. And Jacob's soul abhorred her. And the language in Hebrew, it carries the idea of wanting to push her to the periphery, wanting to push her aside. And, and we saw that Leah had that idolatrous heart and that God, though, had cured that in part, we thought. At the end of chapter 29, when she finally has Judah, from whom Jesus comes, and she says, now I will praise the Lord. She had been trying to gain her husband's love through bearing him children, and then finally she realized that was a futile exercise, and God gave her the son from whom the Redeemer would come. And, and, you know, it's interesting. I am one of those people that often thinks it would be better if our Bibles had no chapter breaks but then it would be impossible for us to ever witness to people because we'd be just flipping through pages constantly, not knowing where to look. But, but I actually think where our chapter break is here in Genesis is quite helpful because on one hand, while we're looking at verses 31 down to verse 24, and, and, and we might say, well, all of that goes together, and it does, there's another sense in which there's a break. Leah has Judah, and you think that her heart has been healed by the Lord. She says, now I'll praise the Lord. That's, that's, that's a, a, a sign of worship and adoration. She, for a moment, has, has let go of her idol for just a moment. 
But then here in chapter 30, as we now shift to Rachel and then back to Leah and to Jacob and seeing all that's going on in this this twisted and skewed home, we see that this is the continuing saga, just like a soap opera. There's another episode. There's another twist. There's another plot. And notice that we read in verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I die. Now, one of the interesting things here, because there is a whole psychology of the inner life in these chapters. There's, there's, a, there's a psychology of desire, and there's a psychology of idolatry. And John Calvin, you know this quote, that very famous quote that Calvin says, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full, of it is, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity, that man is always seeking to make something to worship, and that comes in the form of desire. What, what is that ultimate thing that I am putting out in my life that is controlling me, to whom I give the better part of my time and energy, whether it's money or status or success or power or whatever it is? pleasure, whatever those things are, if that's what's driving my life, rather than worshiping the true and living God, I have an idol. And, and the Holy Spirit takes us into the heart of Rachel. And, and what he does is he uncovers what's going on in Rachel's heart. Notice that Moses tells us she envied her sister. Now, um, I've already noted that Jake, Rachel is not trying to win Jacob's love. She's already got Jacob's love. As warped and twisted as that love is, she already has that. She's already the preferred wife. She's already the loved one. But it's not enough that she has the love of her husband. Isn't that interesting, just how restless the soul is? She has the love. Her sister, her older sister, would do anything to have that love. She's driven by a desire for that love, and Rachel is not content to have the love that her sister can't even have. Rachel has to be superior to Leah. Now, I want you to listen very carefully because I think there's something very important in this passage for us. What, what is going on with, with uh, Rachel's desire is that she is seeking the preeminence. She is nothing less than, than having more children than Leah and the love of Jacob will su- suffice. You can see how, how our, our, we, are, we are eaten up internally by our idolatrous desires. That it's not enough. It's never enough. And, and she is comparing herself. And by the way, this is, this is a great word to us this morning. That so much of what fuels idolatrous desire in our lives for money, for more money, more money. I, I, this one thing... I've, I've always wrestled with this, seeing people just running after money, more money, more money, more money, and will never satisfy. And it just consumes and consumes. But behind that is a desire for preeminence. It's a desire for power. It's a desire to be better than others around you. Um, sad reality is so many people never come to terms with that. Rachel actually doesn't come to terms with that for a long time, that that's what's going on in her life, that, that she is seeking to supplant her sister. Isn't that interesting? Jacob had supplanted Esau. The younger had supplanted the older. And now here's his loved wife. The younger is seeking to supplant the older. And she is 
doing the very thing that Jacob had done, but she's seeking to do it for superiority and preeminence. Uh, I, I think there's a, there's a very interesting word here because on the one hand, the book of Genesis starts out with God telling Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So part of God's original design is that, that uh, Adam and Eve, man and woman, would have children and, and God would be glorified in the home as the parents and the children gave him glory together. And, and that is reiterated after the flood to Noah. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. That's there. And, and the covenant promises are, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. That, that is the epicenter of the Bible. God says, I am going to be the covenant Lord. I am going to bless you. I'm going to put a hedge of protection around your home. I am going to give your children special promises to nurture them so that they will, they will come to see what kind of God I am. And at the same time, in that very family that had those promises and who should have been seeking the Lord to enable them to have a godly home, they are making idols out of their spouses and out of their children. It's very interesting that there are several places in Genesis where um, Jacob does it, Sarah does it, Rachel does it, Leah does it. There are several places where um, those who are living in idolatrous relationships, it, they, they, they call on God's name or speak in such a way religiously as if God is blessing them while they are living in this deceitful, desirous idolatry. Um, Leah does it constantly. Now... God has heard me. Now, as if God is there to fulfill all of our sinful desires. And there's a warning, isn't it? That we can take good things like children. And, and this is, you know, Jesus thought it was a big enough problem that he had to say, whoever loves husband or wife more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, if the Savior of the world thought that was a big enough deal to warn that, we better give heed to that. And, we, you know, we do it in 10,000 ways. Wanting our children to succeed in life rather than know Jesus. Wanting our marriage to look healthy because so many others don't. Wanting to look the best we can. You know, the whole Christmas letter is built on this. I mean, we really use our families oftentimes. Not all of us, but many use the family to, to look good and to get that preeminence. And Rachel is, is acting her idolatry out in a very specific way. She, she goes to Jacob, and that desire, that desire uh, manifests itself in her saying, give me children or I die. Now, now think about this. She is acting as if her ability to have children is utterly dependent on him. She's thinking naturally, naturalistically. She's not saying, can we go to the Lord and pray together for children that he would open my womb? She says, you give me children or I die. And Jacob, notice his response, only time he speaks. He's, by the way, he's a terrible husband. So men, get, take heed, take heed. He gives in to all the idolatry of all his wives and he ends up with four. And, and let me just say this real quick, because somebody asked about polygamy recently. And why, do, why does God allow polygamy? Well, why does God allow any sin? Why does God allow you to do all the sin you do? Um, 
nothing good comes from the polygamous relationship. That's the whole point of Genesis 29 and 30. Nothing good comes from it. Destruction and havoc. And yet Jacob, the only time he responds to Rachel when she makes this, this claim, give me children or I die, he, he, he responds harshly in anger and he says to her, he says, am I in the place of God who is withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Here is his beloved Rachel and he is short-tempered with her. And he sees, and here's the very interesting thing. He doesn't respond in a godly way, even though what he says is true. But Jacob sees the very thing we just talked about. He sees that his wife has made an idol of children. He sees that his wife, her desires are misplaced. And, and he sees that she's not trusting the Lord. Now, a godly husband at that moment would have said, can we pray together about this? A godly husband would have said, can I read God's word to you? Can I remind you of God's promises? Can we go together to the throne of grace? But instead he lashes out at her, and then that turns her back to her own desires again. She doesn't learn, and this is very important because how many times we hear these things and we walk away and then we just go right back to the same sins, the same desires, and, and she takes her handmaiden and she tells Jacob to go in to her and, and she'll bear children and he takes Zilpah to be his wife and, and she conceives, verse 5, Bilhah, I'm sorry, conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, and here's, here's her taking up God's name, God has judged me. Notice that, God has judged me. Um, one, of the, one of the interesting things, and we're going to talk about God overruling our sinful desires because he does in this chapter. That's one of the amazing things. Well, everything is going on wrong on the earthly sphere. God is working out his plan. He does give Jacob children through Bilhah. He does give Jacob children through, um, through Leah's handmaiden. He does give Jacob children, ultimately more children, through Leah. He does give Jacob a child here in the end of this chapter through Rachel. God is overruling in all of that, and yet she, for all of that, hasn't noticed that she's living in sin, hasn't noticed that her motives are wrong, her heart motives are wrong, and that she's not trusting the Lord. That's a very frightening thing. Let me say this as emphatically as I can this morning. When we are going on living in sin and idolatry, and we are taking God's name up on our lips, Jesus warns about this. He, he, he says to the Pharisees, you know, hypocrites, you draw near with your mouth, but your hearts are far from me. And, and Rachel is acting hypocritically. And it's a frightening thing to realize we can do that. And we can think what we're doing is perfectly fine and normal and good and right. And my desires have to be good. And God said, be fruitful, multiply. God wants us to have kids and God wants us to have a family. And so this is good. And all the while, she is just doing this because she envies her sister. Think about, think about that. She is using everybody. She's using Jacob. She is using her servant. She's going to use Leah's son later in the chapter to get her way. And that, that's, that's always a good test. If you want to know whether your desires are right, Obviously, God's word makes that very clear to us. God's word is the, is the rule and the standard. But if you want to know whether your actions 
are being driven by right motives, ask yourself the question, how much am I seeking to serve others? Or how much am I using others to get my own way? That's, that's the million dollar question. What do my actions show more? That I am using others to get what I want, even to get to the top, or that I am seeking to serve others? I mean, Jesus puts all this right there, doesn't he? When he says, he who would be greatest, servant of all, he who's first is going to be last. The disciples had to learn this. Remember, James and John wanted to get to the top. They said, Lord, let us sit with you, one in your right, one in your left, in your glory. We want to be the best. Forget the other disciples. Forget the mission of God. We want to have the status. We want to be at the top. Now, let me say this this morning. If the mother of several of the tribes of Israel, if the other mother of several of the tribes of Israel, if the disciples of Jesus could have that in their hearts, you and I certainly can and do. And so we have to, we have to ask ourselves those questions. Where in my life, where in my life am I using others for selfish gain and to fulfill my own desires? Now, there's going to be lots of good news. So just take the, take the searching news. Um, as this chapter goes on, you, you see that there are also um, there are new sinful desires on the part of Leah. Um, you thought Leah's heart was cured, right? Leah had Judah. Now I'm going to praise the Lord. Yay, unloved Leah was loved by the Lord. She got it. She's looking for redemption. She's looking for the Redeemer. Yay. Let's follow the example of Leah. But it takes one incident with her sister. Her sister envied her, and she went right back to the competition. Isn't that fascinating? One incident. And there's a word there for us, right? When others sin against us and act with sinful desire toward us, how quickly and easily we can backslide, even when we've had our heart made right in some particular area. I mean, here's Leah, who was just jealous of her younger sister and the love of Jacob and just wanted that love more than anything. And and her heart is cured at the end of chapter 29, and she's right back at the race, and she's at it with fervor and with zeal. And she's not content to have one more child. She's not content to have two more children. She will have seven children by the end of this chapter. She will have more children than, than Rachel and the two maidservants put together. So she is driven by the same idolatrous zeal, but not, not to be supreme for the sake of having preeminence and status and, and to be at the top, but to win the love of her husband. She is back at her idolatrous relationship. And it is, you know, this chapter is such a warning chapter to us because every one of us has so many idols in our lives. And, and we think we get over one and we go right back to it. You know, the Proverbs say, as a dog returns to its vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. And so many of us do the same thing that Leah is doing. Leah is right back where she was before. Um, you know, in a very real sense, Leah becomes worse than Rachel. Her son's out in the field. He's probably about nine years old, Reuben. 
He finds some mandrakes. Most commentators are going to say these are sort of simultaneously aphrodisiacs and fertility drugs. At least they were believed to be so. And Rachel wants some of those mandrakes. And so Leah puts her son up to selling her husband to her for intimacy. I mean, he basically prostitutes himself out, and she does that. That's how desperate she is. Now, here's, here's the word for us. If Leah could even use her son to get her way, she could even employ her son in her idolatrous deception. Um, And she was so driven she would do whatever it takes, including telling her husband, who should have stood up this whole time, Jacob could have solved all of this if he had been a godly husband, according to God's word. And he had led in the home. He even gives in to the fact that Leah says, I've bought you. Um, the language used when he goes into her is not the language of the intimacy of a husband and a wife. It's actually used in the Bible of rape or of um, disdaining that, that he went into her not, not to love Leah, but to use Leah, to give Leah what she wanted. And um, it's a tragic, it's a tragic account. You see everywhere our idols fail us. Isn't it interesting? No one gets satisfaction ultimately in this chapter. Nobody gets, nobody gets what they're seeking after ultimately. And that's the way for all of us, for every one of us. If we invest our time and energy into idols, if we invest it into things that can never satisfy, they will always let us down. I want to read this to you. Um, Ian Duguid Writing on this passage says, this is the essence of idolatry. Someone or something other than the living God is occupying the God-shaped space at the core of our being. We were created as worshiping beings, people whose meaning and purpose cannot be derived from ourselves, but must come from outside of us. There's always someone or something other than ourselves on which we have hung our whole identity or self-worth. I want to say that again. There is always someone or something other than ourselves on whom we hang our identity and self-worth, always. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter whether you're cognizant of this or not. You are putting your self-worth and identity in someone or something outside of yourself. And if it's not the living God, it is always an idol. Duguid goes on to say, if we turn our backs on the true God, we inevitably attempt to fill the void with something else. Whatever we must have instead of or as well as the God of the Bible, if life is to have meaning for us, that is our idol. For you, it may be health. Oh, let me, I'm just going to pontificate for one second. You do realize that the majority of the health obsession in our culture is idolatry. I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm telling you. The majority of it is idolatry. The majority, I'm not saying don't be healthy. I'm saying health can be an idol. Yes, I am asking you to agree with me, but it's true. doesn't matter if you don't agree with me. Um, Duguid goes on and he says, whether it be health, comfort, wealth, control, the affection of a particular individual, or a thousand other things. So if we turn our back on the God of the Bible, we are inevitably going to find our identity somewhere. Now, I told you, God overrules God overrules desires. 
God was sovereign over the desire of Rachel and Leah and everything that happened. God creates life in the womb. God is here orchestrating his plan. He is creating the Old Covenant Church, even through this nasty, messy, idolatrous situation. God is overruling. And God is going to bring through Leah. This is marvelous, by the way. God loves the unlovely, and he prefers the unpreferred. Jacob preferred Rachel. God preferred Leah. Leah's going to be the mother. Listen to this. It's amazing. Leah was going to be the mother of Moses, Aaron, every priest in Israel, every king in Israel, David, and Jesus. Every major figure in the Old Testament is going to come from Leah. Joel Beakey says, in essence, he says Moses and Aaron and David and Jesus have Leah's blood flowing through their bodies and that you wouldn't even be a Christian today if it wasn't for Leah. Because God brings the Redeemer through Leah, through Judah. God brings the priesthood through Levi, from Leah. Every one of God's purposes in redemptive history are in essence fulfilled, by and large, through Leah. Because God is going to have sovereign mercy and grace on Leah. And that is remarkable. That's remarkable. It's absolutely remarkable that God's plans and purposes. And here's the wonderful thing. Here's the thing you can take away. Leah doesn't know any of that. Leah doesn't know what redemptive history holds. Leah thinks she's still the unloved one. She's still disappointed. Her desires are still not fulfilled. But here's the amazing thing. God may be doing things in your life even while you're living in these sinful desires. God may be doing things in your life that are for generations from now that you don't even know about and that you won't know about until you're before the throne of God. Leah has no idea, and and yet God is working and he is overruling. And secondly, he is overruling all of the sin. You know, God is overruling. How, How does this messy situation, how do we work our way out of this messy situation? How how in the world can we overcome the envy, the idolatrous envy of Rachel, or the idolatrous envy and jealousy of Leah? What good is going to come out of this? And the rest of the Bible tells us. And this is amazing. I want you to listen very carefully. The Bible says that Jesus the Redeemer, the Savior, the line of the tribe of Judah, uh, it says he is altogether lovely. Um, Psalm 45, speaking of Jesus under the figure of the Messianic King, says, um, um, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Um, When officers were sent by the Pharisees to go and arrest Jesus in John 7, they come back and, and the Pharisees say, why didn't you arrest him? And they said, no man ever spoke like this man. And, and what we're meant to gather as we look at that, he's altogether lovely. No one ever spoke like this man, that he is chief among 10,000, that he is fairer than the sons of men. When we fix our eyes on the son of Leah, the Redeemer, it is impossible for us to look at others and to envy and tr- try to be at the top. Isn't that amazing? That's how God cures your idolatry. If your idolatry is health or or money or wealth or children or family or anything else that Jesus says, if you love more than him, you're not worthy of him. If that's the issue, then looking at Jesus is the solution. 
fixing your eyes on Jesus and seeing if, if Rachel had just seen that the God of Israel was altogether lovely in his redeeming work, she wouldn't have envied her sister. She would have been content for him to have the preeminence. You know, the Bible says that in all things, Jesus gets the preeminence. You don't get the preeminence ever. It doesn't matter what position you hold. It doesn't matter what happens to you in life. You do not get the preeminence. The son of Leah gets the preeminence. And by his bloodshed, he forgives us of all the times that we've had idols in our hearts. There's this great, and I'll close with this in just a second. Two more things about how God overrules the sin and overrules uh, our sin as well as their sin. There's this great picture about how God deals with idolatry in the Old Testament. Um, When Moses comes down the mountain and he finds the golden calf, uh, he tells Aaron to crush it up, and they put it in the river, and then they make the people drink it. And and then throughout Israel's history, whenever there's a godly king, he, he is to tear down the high places, the places of idolatry, the places of false worship, and they were to crush up the idols, and they were to put those, that, that, that showing that the idols had been destroyed, they were to put them in the brook Kidron. Now you may say, okay, I have no idea where you're going with this. But Jesus, as he goes to the cross to deal with our idolatry, John makes a point of saying, when he had crossed the brook Kidron, it's the last place, it's the place where all the idols were crushed. Jesus was marching to destroy our idols by bleeding for us on the cross. Jesus, Jesus forgave Rachel and Leah and Jacob of their idolatry by taking all the wrath of God for that idolatry on himself. Idolatry is not a small thing. You know, I want to say that this morning. This stuff is not small, and this stuff in our lives is not small. It's not small. It costs the, the blood of Jesus. It costs the lifeblood of the Son of God. And yet, here's the wonderful thing, and I'll leave you with this thought as well. Rachel felt like she was suffering. Leah felt like she was suffering. They felt, those, those two sisters felt like what they were going through was the worst thing that anyone could ever go through. And they felt an agony and a suffering No one has suffered like Jesus Christ. As he goes to heal us of our idolatry and our idolatrous um, desires in in Gethsemane, when he sees the, the cup that he has to drink and the wrath of God in that cup to heal us and forgive us, when he marches to the cross and he hangs naked and bleeding and bruised in, in, in Golgotha, no one suffers like Jesus. He takes the full wrath of God. His soul is so afflicted that unlike Rachel, who was suffering out of sinful idolatry, the sinless son of God cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The father forsook the son and no one suffered like that. And he did it for your idolatry and my idolatry. You know, if you have this picture of life and the family that, that is... Um, is all about you putting on a pretense in order to be seen, in order to gain preeminence, in order to, to, to keep up with the Joneses, in order to, to, to just have this life out here for everyone to see how great things are for you, um, you are going to be miserably disappointed. It might come in the form of your wife melting down like Rachel and Leah did. 
It might come in the form of your children rebelling, like you'll see many of the tribes, the children of these women do. Um, God has a way of constantly bringing us to a, a point where we are not going to feel like we have control of our lives so that we will look to him who overrules, who overrules even when we have idolatrous desire and we're living for the things of this world and we're not living for him. And praise God, he has done everything to remove those idols from our hearts. And he holds Christ out to you this morning. And he says, come. Come to the one who deals with all of that. Look at the one who's altogether lovely. Look at the one. I mean, the only person you should ever compare yourself to is Jesus. And when you do, you're going to fall on your knees and worship him. That's what happens. You stop comparing yourself with others. You start comparing yourself with the son of God and you will worship him for his glory and his beauty. That, that is where this is moving. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that our hearts indeed are perpetual idol-making factories, that we do not worship you as we ought, that we do not trust you as we ought, that we do not call on you as we ought, that we do not listen to your word as we ought, that we do not hope in your salvation as we ought. And Father, we thank you again this morning that you have held your son out to us and that we see that he is altogether lovely, that Lord Jesus, you are chief among 10,000, that no man ever spoke like you spoke and that Lord Jesus, you are fairer than the sons of men. We pray that you would free our hearts, our God, from the idols that we have set up so often and so recurringly. We pray, our God, that you would free us and forgive us and Give us brokenness and help us to see the Lord Jesus and cause this world and, and the attainments of this world and the desires of our sinful hearts to be, uh, to be washed and cleansed and freed and to realign our sight. We pray, our God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts this morning, that we might see the Lord Jesus as we come to the table and that you might heal us. We pray these things in his name. Amen.